0: Well, good morning to each of you. It's so good to see you this morning. Uh, I just wanted to start by saying, as we do each week, that I want to thank you for once again being generous people. Uh, The first is this, is that um, we have this single mothers group that has been meeting uh, uh, once a week, and it's been gaining steam. And we have asked you to participate in the life of that group, one, by watching um, some kids and playing with them. We had a, a great game of kickball this week, good time. But what was more impressive is that you guys have signed up to make meals for the single moms group all the way out until May, uh, which, is, which is amazing. I mean, it was a struggle at first, but you guys have come along. And for you to provide meals for these you know, these fine ladies who work straight up until 7 and then come over here, the kids are hungry, uh, it's amazing to have those meals. The other is this, is that uh, we have these crisis care kits and these student pack kits. And my understanding is that it may not seem like a lot, but between the two of these kits, last year we, we filled seven boxes. This year we've filled 20 boxes. Uh, give yourself a hand. That's, that's a huge, huge change. It doesn't seem like a lot, but these bags will change the lives of over 400 people. 400 people because of your generosity. Thank you so much, church, for being a generous church. Give yourself a hand one more time. Well, this morning, we are uh, coming off the heels of one of the most celebrated, uh, exciting, and, and foundational moments of our faith, the resurrection of Christ. It, it is an exciting time, and some of you are saying, where are all the people from last week, right? I mean, uh, that's the whole point, though, is that resurrection is a, is a weekly and, and daily uh, commitment to Christ. As, as we're renewed in the image of Christ, this is something that happens Daily. And let me just say this, though. It's not about just people who aren't here. It's also about you. You can come to church weekly and miss out on what it means to live a resurrected life. And so we believe as we gather each week, we, we experience the resurrection. So we become daily presence of what new creation looks like to the world. And so coming off of Easter, actually, we're still in Easter. Uh, we started the tide season, which lasts for seven weeks. And so we felt it would be fitting to start a new series called Renew, living life as it was divinely designed. Y'all catch that? Renew, living life as it was divinely designed. And we chose Renew because, as you know, you're studious. Re means to do again or to do repetitiously or do over and over and over again. And we feel that because of the resurrection, the power that it brings causes us to be new people every day. As I said last Sunday, the image of getting out of bed every day is a sign of what resurrection looks like. As you move from the darkness of of night and you get up into the light of the day, it's a reminder that we are resurrected in Christ. And so we feel like being renewed is important. That Jesus calls us to a certain kind of life. And it's kind of difficult, but being new in him is essential to being a Christian. And so we'll find over the next seven weeks that Jesus teaches us what it looks like to live the divinely designed life. That is hard to say. You practice saying that a few times because I had to practice it. Over, over, and over again. So uh, this morning, I want to ask you this question. How many of you have had an experience in life where you've gotten to the point where you say, Really? That's it? Have you all ever said that before? Maybe it was um, when you were a little kid and your your parents forced food that you didn't like. Brussels sprouts. My parents would never do that. But uh, maybe your parents did. Maybe they made you eat food that you didn't like. And, you know, it took months and months and months for you to get over that phobia. And finally you took a bite and you're like... That's it? Like, that wasn't so bad, right? Maybe it was your first kiss. Some of you remember your first kiss, and maybe it wasn't a really good first kiss, and you were really excited about the first kiss, and all of a sudden it was like, really? Like, that's it? I may be done with this whole dating thing. Some of you have had medical procedures in your life, right? And and we have this fear of going under the knife, or we have a fear of being put to sleep. Let me tell you, I've had a procedure once where I was put to sleep. That was the best medicine I've ever had in my life. I haven't slept like that for ages. It was great. But I remember, I was a little fearful too, and, and when I got done, I was like, that's it? That's it? I mean, y'all, y'all understand what I'm saying here. I can remember when, when I was a youth pastor. Now, starting in southern India, was a big deal for us. Uh, Janella and I both had jobs prior to this, not in ministry. Uh, we were doing quite well financially. Uh, we had a nice house, you know, the typical American life, nice SUVs and cars. We were doing really, really well. Uh, and then I got out of the Army, and she got pregnant. Now, you talk about life change. I mean, you go from having two jobs to two unemployed people with a kid. It's pretty amazing, uh, pretty exciting times in your life. And and so I remember when we said yes to becoming a youth pastor, we lost, I mean, we took a reduction in salary by nearly 70%. It was a huge change for us. So we went from finan- financial stability, two cars and a nice house, to uh, being a pastor with two kids, and we were on wick. I mean, what a, <laughs> it was a joy, um. But here's the interesting part about it. I remember that we couldn't afford certain things. Uh, the life that we had before, we couldn't afford and So we had to sell some of vehicles and some of the things that we've owned. And I remember being kind of like, oh, I hate letting this thing go. But it turned out that getting rid of one vehicle and going to one was a huge blessing. Now, my church was a stone's throw. Um, it was maybe a quarter of a mile, whatever. But if you have a really good arm, you could get it there. But I remember, like... It's first starting out when I would walk up to the church every day, and I'd walk home, and sometimes it'd be late nights, board meetings, and youth group, and all that. We had a great youth group. Uh, I just remember walking, at first it was like a drudge, but then I began to realize, hey, this is a wonderful time. If you've been in southern Indiana, it's a pretty place, and I remember the stars would be out, and you could see it over the hills, and it's just gorgeous, but I remember this was a time of honest conversation with God, and I remember that this was A new experience for me, being a pastor, I remember that we had a youth group that was thriving. We had a church that at that time was thriving. And I remember, in the midst of all the church busyness, there were times when I would walk home, and I'd look up to God and I'd say, Really? Is this it? Like, you're the God who resurrected from the dead? Is this what the power of resurrection does? Is it it calls us to to church, and then we go home, and we... What? Nothing. That's it. And so this morning, I think this is the question that John wants to grapple with is, really, that's, that's it? That's what the resurrection does for us? And so this morning, we've been in Luke for like forever. Now we're moving into the gospel of John for a couple weeks before we move out. John is interesting. He's an interesting character because uh, he's one of the in folks. We've been talking about Luke as the one on the outside. Uh, John's on in the inside. And John, I would say, is perceived as being kind of arrogant in the scriptures. You know, in his own book, in his own telling of Christ's story, he often refers to himself as the loved one or the one that Jesus loved. Uh, the other thing, too, is, is there's this kind of arrogance as he tells us his own documentary of the tomb story that he outran Peter. I mean, you've got to put yourself first in the gospel, which is completely contrary to what Jesus taught us. Uh, but the interesting thing is, is I don't know for John that it's so much... The cockiness or arrogance, as it is so much a confidence, that John saw something in his life that other people didn't see, and so what's interesting about John's gospels is that that he has an eyewitness account of Jesus's life for us, and he tells us stories in his gospel that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John don't tell us. We call them the synoptic gospels. I'm having trouble saying this one which means seeing with the same eye, that we see Jesus' life with the same eye. But John's is different because he takes us behind, literally today, he'll take us behind closed doors and into conversations with Jesus that other writers didn't tell us about. And so this is really an exciting time as we discover John's gospel this morning. If you'll turn with me to John chapter 20, we'll start in verse 19. John chapter 20, verse 19. It says, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed him his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed. Now you remember this. Jesus tells them, your fear will turn into joy. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And with that, listen to this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. For if you forgive sins, their sins are forgiven. And if you do not forgive, they are not forgiven. Interestingly, Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, we have seen Jesus. But he said to them, unless I see the nails marks in his hands and put my finger where the the nails were and put my hand into his side, listen to this, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house. Again, this is a common theme for the disciples hanging out in the house, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, as only you can imagine, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said, my Lord, my Lord, my God. And Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. But listen to this. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Now here comes an interesting part of the, the story. John says, Jesus performed Many other signs in the presence of disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing you have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our lectionary reading for this morning is interesting, and here's why. Uh, We have two different accounts, and I think John has written these accounts Not because he wants us to read them separately, but rather I think he wants us to parallel the two stories and see that within those stories, there are the same themes and the same problems. And I think the reason why John tells us about the disciples and Thomas, which is essentially the same story, John realizes, he realizes the depth of what has just happened and how difficult, even for people who saw the empty tomb, to grasp. And I think he... That even for people who believe but don't see Jesus, he realizes that even in our belief, it is difficult to understand what just happened. And so he gives us these two stories. And we're going to work through three problems within this story. And we're not going to give you a serious solution, but rather we're going to give you a challenge. It's always exciting. And so I love how he starts the story. He says, on the evening of the first day. Now, if if you're not paying attention, you can read over that and not think another thing about it. But notice that he says, on the first day of the week. Now, this isn't the first day of just the week. This is the first day of God's new world. Literally, literally, they just witnessed Jesus come out of the tomb, and, and they're not really sure what to do with this, but Jesus is alive. And so they go back, and, I, you know, it says in John's Gospel, he says, I ran, and I saw the empty tomb, but, but then what did I do? I, I believed, but then what? And so I think as John writes the gospel, as he's older now, he realizes that he didn't understand the depth of it, so they ended up going home. And it's likely that they went home to the place where they had the Passover meal, which is which is kind of interesting. So what he wants to tell us is that the disciples have yet to figure out what it means to, to live in the light of God's new world because we don't understand the depth of it. But, but it's not only just the first day, it's about the evening as well. The, the disciples go back, and, and they're, they're sitting in darkness. They're sitting in the evening, which is really a nice way of saying that they have entombed themselves and locked themselves from, from the outside world because of fear. We'll get to fear in a minute, but Thomas's story is interesting, too, because Thomas is not with the disciples. Yet we find that Thomas is alone on, on his own. He, he's kind of separated himself from, from people because Thomas was a little bit more he was kind of brave in some ways. He literally believed that Jesus was going to die. In fact, when, when Jesus suggests they go to Bethany to visit Lazarus, who was ill, Judas or excuse me, uh, Thomas says, yes, let's go. I'm ready to die on the cross with you, Jesus. I'm ready to do this thing. So he expected Jesus to die. And Jesus dies. And he is so brokenhearted and full of sorrow that he can't be in fellowship of other people. And so he kind of separates himself. From the disciples and from other people, and we find that he's grieving alone. Now, fear is a huge issue in the story. We see that they were gripped with fear because people were chasing them. We don't necessarily see it so much in Thomas's story, although we'll see it here in a few minutes. But, but the disciples were filled with anxiety, and and fear is really uh, it's, it causes anxiety about the future of our life. I mean, they knew when you when you look at the Greek. There's there's a tie between this fear and persecution. I mean, they thought to themselves, if they could hang Jesus on a cross, I can only imagine what they're gonna do to us. And so here they are, they've they've been paralyzed by, by fear. And I think today that in many ways, as God's people, we are paralyzed by fear as well. We are fearful of ISIS, we are fearful of our future. We are fearful of sickness. We are fearful of death. We are fearful of our failures. We're, we're fearful about what's going to happen to our church. We're fearful of, of other people. But this is the problem, is that fear causes God's people to grow in on themselves. And so instead of living the Christ-like life, which is about self-giving and sacrificial giving, we are then moved to, to self serving kind of life. And so the disciples are beginning to see that in their fear, they, they've been moved from the outside world into the darkness. You have to understand this, that fear has the power to paralyze our divinely divined presence in the world. For those of you taking notes, write that down. Fear has the power to paralyze our divinely designed presence in the world. The disciples forgot their identity. The disciples forgot their mission out of fear of being crucified like Christ. And so I think that is true for us today as God's people. When we become fearful of those things in the world that kind of threaten our well-being, we become closed up. And and the tendency of the church is to grow in on itself and, and close itself off from the rest of the world to the third problem. So we have, we find that they're alone. We find that uh, they are, are fearful. Now they're in isolation. We see the disciples have forgot their identity and their mission, but, but Thomas is somewhere else. And this is the problem with Thomas. This is the, the, the issue, the problem that... This is the mistake that Thomas made. Thomas decided in his sorrow that he would segregate himself from the fellowship in the body of Christ. And let me just tell you this this morning, that any time in the midst of our brokenness and our pain and our sorrow, when we separate ourselves from the body of Christ, we miss out on what Jesus wants to do in our life. Did you all miss it? That that Thomas missed out on Jesus' first appearance to his disciples. And so we believe at Joliet First, and we say this weekly. and I know you're getting tired of me saying it, but I don't care. I'm going to say it if I leave this church, that we at, at Joliet First believe that in order to be a Christian, you have to be part of the church. You cannot be a Christian apart from the church. And it's not because we're some, you know, like methodical church attending, Bible toting Nazis. It's because we believe that, that weekly we gather and weekly we celebrate the power of the resurrection. So then we've become a presence to the world of what change and God's mercy and His love and His restoration looks like for the lost and the world. And so. In many ways, isolation is an issue. And this is Thomas's problems. He, he's moved himself away from the disciples, away from people, and he misses out on what God wants to do in the fellowship of his people. But this is this is the best part. This is where the story gets good. We've talked about the three problems of being alone, fear, and isolation, but but this is the best part. Jesus steps into your self preservation into their self-imposed prisons and tombs, and he breathes his peace upon them. Now listen to this. Fear and isolation are stripped of its power when Christ breathes his peace upon his people. There's a lot of P's in there. (laughs) Fear and isolation are stripped of their power when Christ breathes his peace upon his people. And so this is what I love about our God, is that he is an up-close and personal God, I mean, think about this. I'm going to use my grandpa as an example this morning because he's right here. But how close do I have to get to him so he can feel my breath? This is the kind of God that we serve—is that He is so up close and personal with each of you that He breathes breath upon you and you can feel it. Now, when you hear this word "breath," you have to know that this takes us back to the Genesis story in Genesis two six. Where God breathes his life into his creation. So breath is essential to the story. That it's not just about God breathing life into creation. But God's breath separates the formless and the void. The chaos. And then creates order out of this breath. This breath becomes life in through Jesus. And so as, as Jesus breathes on his disciples. He's saying receive this breath now. So that you may become renewed images of this breath. And here's the point. Jesus' disciples now have the responsibility and are given the responsibility when we think about you have the power to forgive or not forgive. What Jesus is saying is you have the power to give life or to give death. Which we'll get to that in a minute too. But you, my friends, as God's people, as you receive the breath of Christ, as you breathe it in, are then called to, to breathe new life out to the world. And any time we fail to do that, you are not living life as you were divinely designed by God. So you have the power to breathe life or death. And I want us to hear this morning that, that, that the Spirit is not about, as we've kind of made it in the church over the years, some new, like, holy experience. Receiving God's Spirit is, in His breath. Is not about uh, it's not about a holy club, a holiness club. You understand that that receiving God's Spirit is about you being sent to the world, and so He tells He tells His disciples, "As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Be, go, and do." And so I think this is what John wants to tell us this morning is this, is that the resurrection is so moving that if we are not moved by it, we have missed out on what it means to live resurrected life. Living life as it was divinely designed means those who believe are not set, we're not stationary, immovable, unchangeable, but we are sent. Living life as it was divinely designed means we are not set, we are sent to the world. And so this is the beauty of the story that we see this morning in the gospel. We know explicitly that the disciples were sent, but what about Thomas? Nowhere in this reading that we read this morning does it talk about the life of Thomas. I'm so glad you asked. You're such an inquisitive crowd this morning. <laughs> so let me tell you about the Acts of Thomas. There's an apocryphal book wrote uh, called entitled The Acts of Thomas. We don't know a lot about what happened to Thomas following uh, Jesus' uh, ascension. But we do know this, that that the disciples gathered together, and they decided that they were going to divide up the world. Okay, uh, John, you stay here because you're a Jew. And, you know, well, Thomas, you know, you're a doubter, so you get to go to all the Gentiles. And they they to they cast lots about who was going to go where. And, and it turns out that uh, Thomas was given India. And so... Thomas says to, to God, he says, listen, Lord, I'm not going to India. There's no way that you're going to send me there. And He says, I'm a Jew. I'm tired. I'm old. There's no way that I'm going to, I'm going to preach to those. Indians. That's a quote. I'm not going to preach to the Indians. But listen to what Jesus, God says to him later that night in his prayer time, in his vision. He says, fear not. Oh. So apparently Thomas was fearing this whole situation, the same that we found with the disciples earlier. He says, fear not. He says, go and preach the gospel to these people. He says, My grace, my peace is with you. Now, Thomas then, like any other good Christian, said, Lord, wherever you would send me, send me. But then he says, just not to India. That's how the story goes, is that literally it's like, send me wherever you send me. But again, I'm not going to India. And so there's this story told that, that a merchant from India is sent to Jerusalem. Now, this is a good story, so pay attention. Wake your neighbor up. Punch him. Uh, so it, this merchant is sent from India by King uh, Gunda Forest. Can you all say that? King Gunda Forest. Turn your neighbor and say Gunda Forest, because that's a fun name. Gunda Forest. This merchant, Abanas, is sent by King Gundaforest to find a carpenter. Well, oddly enough, Thomas is a carpenter. And so the story goes that as this merchant went into town, Jesus sees this guy, and Jesus, being all knowing that he is, says, hey, uh, you know, merchant, Abanas, from King Gundaforest, uh, do you need a carpenter? Huh, yes, I do. I need a carpenter. And he says, well, well this is great. I have this slave of mine have this slave of mine. His name's Thomas. He would love to be your carpenter. And so Jesus says to this merchant from India, he says, hey, let's strike a deal. So they wrote up a deed. And here's what the deed said. It says, I, Jesus, the son of Joseph, the carpenter, acknowledge that I have sold my slave, Thomas, by name unto you, Abanus, a merchant of Gundaphorus, the king of the Indians. So then Jesus goes over and he grabs Thomas and he, he brings him over to this merchant, Abonis, and Abonis and, and says to him, he says, I love this, he says, is this your master? And Judas says, or excuse me, Thomas says, this is my master. And Abanas says to him, he said, well your master has sold you to me as my carpenter. And Thomas says nothing. He just stands there. But the story goes that early the next morning he rose and he began to have a conversation with Jesus and he says this, Lord, I will go wherever you want. Your will be done, not mine. Now here's the fun part too. What a great story. Interesting that we're talking about this. I was sharing with our, our, our creative team about where I was going this week. And so I get this email from Ron Jr. This week. says this The region where St. Thomas settled is the city of Kerala, India. My associate, who is a Christian, said that growing up in that town, almost every family had a boy named Thomas. He also stated that out of the population who are Christians in India, over 50% of them live in that city of Kerala. The tradition is that St. Thomas was able to convert some of the elite people, some of the priests of the Hindu uh, Hindu faith. He converted them, and they became Christians from that point forward. Now, what I didn't tell you in the story is that the Thomas became kind of the overseer of the construction project for the king. And so, if this is true, then it matches up with what with what Ron's associate just told us, that he was able to convert some of the elite people, the kings and the priests. You talk to me about the power of resurrection? This is what it looks like when God's people say yes to God's will for life. I'm almost done. I want to share this with you. This morning we read from Revelation. And in that, the letter by John, uh, the writer of the gospel that we're in today, writes to the seven angels of the seven churches. Now, Scott Daniels, in his book, The Seven Deadly Spirits, writes this. I want you to hear this. He says, the seven angels of the churches are neither disconnected spiritual beings or merely colorful ways of describing non-existent realities, which is often how we talk about revelations in the book. He says, instead, the term angel signifies the very real ethos or the, the communal essence of, Uh, that either gives life or works to destroy the communal body. He says, I am now convinced that that churches, because they are a communal body, have an essence or collective spirit that is either at work aiding it or destroying it. Now listen to what Dr. Scott says in, in his book. He says, I believe the transformation of church requires naming, unmasking, and calling to repentance the spirit or ethos that holds the church captive. So the question is, are we a slave of Christ? Are we a slave to our own demise? I have to be honest with you this morning, church. There are a handful of people of us who are, who are getting it who are really, really getting what it means to go, to be sent, and to serve. Notice in the Revelation passage, it says, you are to be a kingdom and a priest who serve the world. There are a few of us that are really getting this. We're getting the hang of it. But there are just as many who don't. And so I think this morning, the angel for us is one of complacency. I think the angel that shapes us, the ethos that shapes us, the essence of who we are at times is complacency. And so this morning, as God's people, we have to confess that we are a place people rather than a submissive people. And so I believe that that mere Bible studies and church attendance aren't going to get it done. I have to be honest. We'll do anything to come to a Bible study. I've even said this to a few people in the church. Not that I'm going to. It's just a thought that crossed my mind. You know, we'll drive through 10 inches of snow to come to a Bible study and make fun of the pastor when he cancels when there's not enough snow, you know. Uh, But when it comes to actually serving and telling our story to the world around us, not me. Whatever you have me do, Jesus, I will do. Well, I want you to go to the community around you. Not me. Just kidding. And so I I don't want to do this, but, but... Maybe I have to call into question our depth and understanding of the resurrection of Christ. And if we are really Christian, if you are not moved by that event, if you are not moved, to then go and tell your story about how your life has been changed. You have missed what it means to be a Christian. I don't even know that you could consider yourself Christian if you aren't moved. So we believe at this church that we're learning to become a community of hope. And our new values of seek, invest, restore, and serve. Notice they're all verbs. But the majority of our time is spent sitting down. The irony. So if we anticipate to become a community of hope, ladies and gentlemen, we need to be sent, not set. So living life as as it was divinely designed is not about you becoming a better person. But it's about you taking up your cross and drinking from the cup of Christ. It's interesting. I I think about Jeannie's parents. Jeannie told this story this week that her parents, who are missionaries, lost their daughter. Imagine losing one of your own children. And then just within a short time, they went back to the mission field. And people said, what's your problem? Your your daughter just died. Why are you why are you not here with your family in their time of grieving? And they said, We have a mission to take care of. And they went back to the mission field. They get it. They get it. And so this morning you're saying, Well well, Pastor, how do I do that? How do I do that? That's a good question. I'm so glad you asked. I believe I believe that, that part of our responsibility in being sent is learning how to tell our story. Many of you have not found yourself in a place where you've you've had to tell your own story about how Christ has shaped your life and moved in your life. And so you don't even know where to start. You don't even know the language, the verbiage to communicate what resurrection means in your life. That's why we asked that question on Easter Sunday. How would your life be different if the resurrection never happened? And so what we want to do is over this whole series, we want you to learn how to tell your story. And so you'll find that in your worship folder, there's this, there's this little insert that at the top says, What will you write so others may believe? Listen, listen to what, what John says. Genesis yeah, performed many signs and miracles, but we wrote these few down. We wrote these down that you may believe and have life. And so what I'm going to encourage you to do over the next seven weeks, six weeks, because we're in week two, is to begin to write down your personal story. What would you tell somebody about you, about how Christ has changed your life, that would then change their mind and make them believe? What would you tell them? And so as we gather over the next six weeks, what I want you to do is we're going to take this wonderful cross, which as a representative of Good Friday, the next seven weeks, we are going to come together, and you can come before church, you can come up after church, we may even have a time of response next week, but you will come up, and you will hang your story on this cross. You'll pin it to this cross, and I love this, I love this idea. You don't need to put your name on it, unless you really want to, but I'm excited to see the stories that are going to be hung on this cross, about how your lives have been changed. And I think once we learn how to tell the story of God, we will then become a people who are sent to the world. So this is a renewal for us. We are going to learn what it means to live life as it was divinely designed by Jesus for us. So that we could become Jesus for the world.